0: Good morning. I'm going to open a word of prayer and then we're going to get into it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We just ask, Lord, as we look into your word today, that you might open our eyes to see what you are doing, that we might be able to recognize how you work, the way you work, and how you deal with us. Uh, Please teach us now, Lord, about our relationship with you, and that can only be achieved through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I'm not a builder. I am not a builder. I've tried building things in the past and I have failed miserably. I went to Pastor Ben's house and he made this really cool cupboard in his backyard, which he showed me. He's very, very proud of it, and I think so too because it's a brilliant piece of art. Uh, I tried making a billy cart once or a little go-kart. The first ride my child had on it, it broke. So I'm not very good at building, but I do know this about building. That if ever you're going to build a building, it is only as strong as the foundation upon which it is laid. That's it. The scriptures even teach this. The scriptures teach that if somebody takes away someone's foundation, what will happen with that man? What will happen with that woman? Why? Because foundations are vital for the way we conduct ourselves. And that same thing applies, that same principle applies to this thing of our Christian faith we're looking at today. That is called faith. We are looking at what the Bible calls faith. We have been making our way through Hebrews, and right now, which I think is quite appropriate as we come into Hebrews chapter 11, that we are celebrating 20 years of God's faithfulness. 20 years of God working through people, people who were faithful, and even people who were not faithful. But God was working His work, and it seems appropriate then that as we look at this chapter today, that we see what faith is, but faith in and of itself is only as strong based upon the foundation on which it's laid. That's it. You can have faith, yes, but the faith that we have, depending upon the individual that you are trusting in, determines how strong that relationship is. When you look at the person of Jesus Christ, you have the most solid foundation regarding the relationship you share with Him. Why? Why? Because I am told in the scriptures such truths as it is impossible for him to lie. I am told in the scriptures that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am told in the scriptures that the very substance of everything that exists today in this world is upheld by his hand. John chapter 1, verse 3. So we're given a whole bunch of truths that reveal the nature and character of Jesus Christ and why he can be trusted. So our faith depending on where our faith is, determines how strong or how weak we may be walking with him. So in Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to look at three things. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to look at three specific things, what faith is, what faith does, and what faith means. Because I'm given two specific Bible texts in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 and Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 chapter 1, we see this, now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So this stirs up the first question regarding what I'm going to look at today. What faith is? What is faith. I've given you examples, I've given you different things, but the biblical definition I think is the clearest, and I think the best description of what faith is, especially when it comes in relation to our relationship with Him. The biblical definition is, as what's mentioned there, it is the substance, or the word there in the NIV is the confidence of what we hope for. It is the assurance of things we do not see. Such a definition makes sense only if seen in the context of what we've been going through up to this point. Now, for those of you who are just visiting today, we have been working through the book of Hebrews. There are 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews, and for the past 10, 11 weeks, we've been making our way through the first 10 chapters. But if hope is about what is being looking forward to, if hope is about looking beyond, what gives such hope substance? And that's what the first 10 chapters are looking at. What gives our hope substance? What gives it meaning? What, gives it, or what makes it a reality? And that's the foundation of which the writer is referring to all throughout the book of Hebrews. That foundation is the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll go back for you just very quickly. You notice under the, 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 word, the word Hebrews are two words, better than. This is what the writer has been doing for the first ten chapters of Hebrews. He has been explaining to the people, this church that was in Jerusalem, about how Jesus Christ was better than, how that he was superior to, and that he was superior to all their traditions, all their routines, all their ceremonies. Jesus Christ was superior to all of those things. That he was, as we looked at last week in Hebrews chapter ten, that he was the establisher he established a new and better covenant. We read in in Hebrews chapter 1 how he is better than the prophets, how he's better than the angels. And I know every week I go through this, but I want to do this to help you understand and recap what we're actually looking at. So he's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He gives the ultimate rest. He's got a better rest than Joshua provides. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. He's better than this, that, and the other. Everything that the Hebrew people held to and what gave them spirituality was all a picture pointing towards Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus Christ arrived, he was superior to all of those things. This is why in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, we read this that the law, which is looking back at the first five books of the Bible, looking at all the things that, that the writer has been addressing, everything in the Old Testament, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would not have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins, verse 3. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I got to talking with uh, my brother Fred a couple of weeks back, and he, he made this observation, which was a brilliant observation, and it's a brilliant observation that's addressed here. See, in the Old Testament, they would actually sacrifice an animal, shed the blood to help atone for their wrongdoing, to atone for their sin. But the word atonement means this. Can I borrow your jacket, please, Chris? All right, can I get you to come stand out the front here, please, bro? The word atone, right here, man, right here. The word atone means this. (laughs) It means to cover. That's it. Now, he is not going to walk around the rest of his day looking like this. Why? Because it's only a temporary stopgap to hide this beautiful face. What this is is a temporary thing. This is an atonement. This is a covering. I'm enjoying this. But now this is what the blood of bulls and goats would do for the sins of humanity in the Old Testament. They would cover sin, but it was never good enough to take that sin away. What am I told in the scriptures? In John chapter 1 verse 29, when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, John the Baptist looks at him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can sit down. Oh, take that off now. Thank you, Chris. That is why Jesus Christ is better than the blood of bulls and goats. Where the blood of bulls and goats can only cover sin, Jesus Christ could take them away. We are told in the scriptures that it casts it as far as the east is from the west. We're told that it's thrown over his shoulder and that he will never look upon it again. You know why? Because it's taken away. That's why. And that's the truth that is revealed here. You see, if the law was only a shadow of good things to come, and you read through this passage, you see sacrifices, you see rituals, you see things to help deal with sin. We do that exact same thing today. You look at society today, and what society does is they say, if I'm a good person, God will accept me. That's not what the scriptures teach. People today say, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then that will make me acceptable to God. That is not what the scriptures teach. People say, if I keep the Ten Commandments, then I'll be accepted by God. No, that is not what the Scriptures teach. There's nothing that you can do within your own effort to make yourself acceptable to God. Do you know why? Because it's part of your nature. Your sin nature is a part of you. It is a part of you. About four or five years ago, I shared a Christmas message, and I used this illustration, and I remember this illustration, and I'm speaking too fast. And I remember this illustration so clearly because it makes perfect sense I cannot change my ethnicity. I am Samoan, and that's it. I am part Samoan, and I am part Swiss. Uh, Boyd, can you stand up? This is my cousin Boyd. We look alike, don't we? This is my cousin Boyd, all right? Now we, see, even though though we may have difference in, 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 in skin color, even though we may have a difference in looks, he is far better looking than me. He can do nothing. He can do nothing to change his Samoan heritage here's Samoan, that's it, welcome to the club brother, <laughs> grab a seat boy, thank you very much man, thank you very much, and my cousin, you can't do that, why, because by outward effort you can't change your nature, you cannot change your nature, you, you have, I have as good a chance of becoming Chinese than, well there's nothing, I can't, I can use chopsticks, I, I, I could eat Chinese food, which I, by the way is really good, I must admit, it's, it's, it's really good, I can do a whole bunch of things, but will not change my nature. You know what happens? If I want to be Chinese, I would have to be born into a Chinese family. If I want to have my sin dealt with, I need to be born again. That's what I need. I need a very change of my sinful nature. And the only way that is possible is to have my nature changed through trust in Jesus Christ. That's why he says to Nicodemus, that's why he says to Nicodemus, unless you are born again. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven because we can do nothing to change our nature, our sinful nature, as well as our ethnicity. there's something we must be born into, and this is why Jesus is better than. See, Jesus not only met the criteria God required in regards to taking sin away, he superseded that. So if the criteria was that of the blood and bulls and goats to cover for sin, he superseded that by shedding his own blood to take sin away. That is why Jesus is better than. This is why faith and faith in Jesus Christ has substance. This is why my hope has meaning. Not because of the size of my faith, but who my faith is in. That makes all the difference. See, everything in the Old Testament, everything that they pointed to, everything they referred to, everything that they looked at, everything the Old Testament looked at, well, that was Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament pointed towards Jesus. And you know what we have? You know why we enjoy something that they would never enjoy? Is the fact that we see Jesus. They were looking for those things. They were looking forward to see Jesus. That's what we get to see now. I think it's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, when the angels look upon us and wonder, wonder the, the mystery it is to have Jesus Christ or have God himself dwell in us, because they will never experience that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, I'm pretty sure that's it. But this is why. Uh, because my faith is in a great God, not because my faith is great. <clears throat> the issue is this whether you and I are geared to recognize this reality in each of our lives. I had a discussion with some kids uh, at Borkham Hills High just recently, and they were talking about, well, how was it then that I, I don't see God or understand God or, or wondering what God is doing and things like that? And I said, look, there are so many things that you don't see, but you know to be real. Right now, in this moment, there are billions, if not trillions of messages being sent, of conversations being had, of videos being watched, all traveling right now. You don't see it. Why? Because we're not geared to. We need something specific in which we can actually tune in and hear what's been going on. So while someone now sends a message to Jonah and says, Joe's yelling again. I, I didn't see it, but I know it's there. He's checking his phone right now. Okay, That's, that's the reality of it. That's what faith, that's what faith is. It is not blind, it is based upon a reality, it's whether we are geared to recognize and acknowledge what that reality is. And so, for you and I, as people, we have to make sure that the foundation of what our faith is and, and where it rests is in something that is sure, that is trustworthy, that is eternal, that will never pass away, that will never contradict. And, and all of that is found within the person of Jesus Christ. This is what faith is. It is, I'll go back to verse 1 again, it is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. This gives us, this gives us substance. and, and I, I apologize, Pastor Ben, for always using you as an example, but I know this about Pastor Ben, that when he says something to me and that he will do something, I walk away with the confidence knowing that it will be done. Does that make sense? Is it because is it because anything to do with me? No. It's because I know he can be trusted. I know he can do it. That's what gives. His character gives my trust and my faith substance. It gives it meaning. So it is with our relationship with Jesus Christ. That is what it is. It is not about me. It's about where my trust is placed. It's on him. It's about him. That's what faith is. And I just want to establish something very, very, very quickly. The Christian faith. My faith is not blind. My faith is not blind. Uh, to have a blind faith is, is saying something along the lines of, um, I have a billion dollars. And you go, wow, really? And you believe it with no evidence whatsoever. You know what that is? That's stupid. It is. I'm thinking about it. That is really, really dumb. Just because someone says it and you believe it? No. My faith is not unreasonable. My faith is not unreasonable. What I mean by that is this, an unreasonable faith is even though you were told things contrary to what you believe and what you understand, and you choose not to believe it anyway. That's been unreasonable. My faith in Jesus Christ is the most reasonable you can get That I trust in a man who was born 2,000 years ago, who lived a perfect life, performed the miraculous, taught about the things of God, that he was crucified to take upon himself my sin and your sin, that he rose again the third day and ascended to heaven. All of that, historically, historically, makes sense, And, and there is far more evidence historically for the existence of Jesus Christ than the likes of Julius Caesar or Attila the Hun. And, and the fact that he was real, I think, I think the fact that Jesus Christ actually existed is one of the greatest evidences of God's existence. And so then you've got to ask yourself, then why then do I choose not to believe? Why then do I choose to turn myself or turn away from such thing? That is being unreasonable. So that's what faith is. What's really exciting, though, is what faith does. What faith does. This is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse six. I went too far. I didn't actually put it up there. I'm really sorry. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, what we read is that without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. you notice something that pleases God here? Notice how it doesn't refer to what pleases God is just your action. He doesn't make mention. And say that. He says without faith, it is impossible to please God. He doesn't actually mention without works. Now, please, do not misinterpret me. Works are vital. If you read the book of James, you see this. When you have this argument presented by the writer of James, or well, James, when James presents that argument, you say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Which basically means this. If, if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, that is evidence that I really follow him by the way that I live. That I choose to live a life that is holy. That I choose to live a life that's in accordance with his will and not my own. That's how you know. And so he says to them, look, faith, faith, a genuine faith, that spurs and, and motivates and, and stirs within us our desire to live for someone greater than ourselves. To walk in line with him and not my own. What I, I find amazing about faith, which I think is often overlooked by Christians, I'm talking too fast again, is that faith is relational. Faith is relational. That's what faith is really is. We think that faith is about adhering to a stack of rules. I shouldn't do this. I should do this. I shouldn't do this. I should do this. If I do this, then that is an indication of my spirituality. That's what we do in regards to what we consider our faith. But that's not what the Scriptures teach. What I read in the Scriptures there is that it is faith that pleases God. You see faith evidenced by the Roman centurion when when, Jesus, when he asked for his servant to be healed. And then he goes, you know, he goes, oh, look, I'll come to your house. He says, no, you don't need to come to my house. I'm a man of authority. I tell one guy do this, he does it. I tell another guy to do that, he does it. You merely need to say the word, and I know my servant will be healed. And the authority that Jesus has, it's not governed by geographical location or the fact that his presence was there or not. But that faith, what did Jesus say? It says in the King James that Jesus marveled at his faith, so much so that he taught a lesson about it. All in Israel I have not seen a faith such as this. See, what faith does is faith pleases God, and faith is, is relational. You desire to adhere to God's desires and God's heart because of the relationship you share with them. That's why. I do what I do for my wife because I'm trying to earn her favor? No. I already have her favor, I hope. <laughs> I already have her favor. Am I trying to manipulate her to give me something that I want? No, because she's given me everything she has. That's what happens. And so I live the way I live as a married man, not out of any obligation, not out of any duty, but because I desire to, because of the relationship I share with her. I love pleasing my wife. I love making her happy. I love bringing a smile to her face because of the relationship I share with her. That's why. Now, this is what the Scriptures teach here. The reason why I see the Scriptures, see, this is verse 6, okay? Hebrews 11 verse 6, why is it put there? Because it is emphasizing the relational aspect of our law, of, of our walk with God or our interaction with God because you look at the examples that he gives and the various relationships. I should be done soon, right? Abel, Abel in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 Abel brought, brought God a better offering than Cain did by faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings and by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Look what I like about Abel is this: Abel learned to present a sacrifice. If you don't know the story, Abel presents a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. Remember the blood of bulls and goats that helped atone or cover sin. Cain offered vegetables, fruit and veg. right? Cain's uh, sacrifice was rejected. Cain, uh, Abel's was accepted. Why was Abel's accepted? Because it was working and alongside with what God desired for the atonement for sin. That's why. Now here's the thing: Where did Abel learn that? Well, he learned it from his parents. Where did his parents learn that? His parents learned it from God. After Adam and Eve sinned and they were separated from God, who knows what God did for them? God gave them a covering of animal skins. He clothed them with animal skins. What happened to the animals for them to be clothed with animal skins? They had to have been killed. There had to have been a shedding of blood to help atone. So not only did he cover them physically, he covered them spiritually as well. And because of that, they imparted it over to Abel. So this is what I like about Abel and Abel's story here. What did Abel do? Abel trusted. Abel trusted by faith that this is what God required, therefore I will work in accordance with that. You look at Enoch. Enoch, by faith, Enoch was taken out from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. God. Hebrews eleven six. what did that say? It was faith that pleased God. Now remember, there's no 10 commandments here. There's no law. There's no like 613 odd commandments going around saying you should eat this and should eat that, or whatever it might be. This is all relational. They trusted God. Now in the New King James, in the King James, and I think in one other version, I think it's the contemporary English, it says as one who walked with God. See, what what Enoch represents is somebody that walked with God and was intimate with him. Somebody that was friendly with him. Somebody that, that, uh, somebody that was, was there and knew what his heart's desire was because he spent time with him. So that's what he did. Enoch, he walked. You know what those two things are? They are both relational. It's got nothing to do, got nothing to do with keeping commandments or anything like that. It's got everything to do with the relationship you share. Trusted, walked. Look at Noah. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in, f- in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that is in keeping with faith. This is what I like. What things had not yet happened? It had never rained. It had never flooded. Uh, the, we are told in the scriptures that there was a dew, a mist that would water all the plants early in the morning and stuff like that. And so we've got this going on. And so what did Noah do? Even though he didn't fully understand, even though he didn't actually recognize it's going to rain, Noah, it's going to flood the place, his response, what's that? What does he do? He obeys anyway. Noah obeyed. He obeyed. He was given instruction to help escape the the coming wrath to come. And he he did that. Once again, that was an obedience, not, not out of obligation, but out of relationship You look again, I'm I'm hurrying. Abraham, oh, sorry, Abraham, we read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The continuation of the obedience that stems in relationship. You've got a whole bunch of things there that you could say Abraham would do. Uh, Abraham made his faith. he 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 just took the next step. You look in Genesis 12, he just took the next step. God said, Go here, and that was it. So he took the next step. But what I like is in verse 10. Abraham saw. As a not, not as an uncle Ben saw or Chris saw, but Abraham saw, sorry. Abraham saw. He saw where. He was to go. He saw what was going on. He he could see God was working something. And so he just took that step. And, And you see this evident. Oh, sorry, I've got to go back. I apologize. Oh, okay. I'm I'm lost. Sorry. All right. In verses 17 to 19, you saw it was revealed his reliance on God. By faith, Abraham in verses 17 to 19, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his own one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your ice spring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise from the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. That's in verses 17 to 19 of Hebrews 11. It's just saying how Abraham saw, irrespective of the context he was in, he saw a greater God working greater purposes for his glory. That's why when he went to go sacrifice Isaac on the altar... Even if he had killed Isaac and sacrificed him, he was confident that God would raise him from the dead. He was confident in that. You have Sarah, Sarah and Abraham who could not have children. We read in, 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 uh, in Genesis what Sarah does. Because what she does is laughs. In Genesis 18, when God and two angels visit, and she says, Your wife's going to have a child. And she laughs. Helen Roosevelt. Uh, who was a a missionary years in the Congo, a a very godly woman. But she shares about how the laugh that Sarah laughed was a laugh of incredulity, a laugh of doubt, a laugh of sarcasm, which is evident in verse 19, when she goes, well, I'm old. My husband is old. Well, Well, I know pleasure again, and all that sort of stuff. She goes on and laughs. But God in his goodness, when she gives birth in Genesis 21, verse 6, she laughs the laugh of faith. God has brought me laughter, and everyone hears about this will laugh with me. She laughed a laugh of faith. Why? Because she understood and realized, wow, God, you work in spite of my unbelief. You work despite of me. That's what you do. That's, and so that's what she did. Sarah laughed. But this laugh of faith was a glorifying laugh to that of God. Hebrews 11, 24 and 25, Moses. By faith, Moses... When he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. See, up to this point in the biblical narrative, there has never been a set or an outlined set of standards. God has not yet even given his Ten Commandments. And yet, all of these people that I've looked at pleased God. Why? Because they had a relationship that was based on faith, not on action. Their faith created the action that was pleasing to God. Their relationship was dependent upon him and on him alone, not on them. So you have here Moses, with everything that he had, he was willing to turn his back on it. Why? Because he saw the importance of being accepted by God greater than being recognized as a prince in Egypt greater than being a ruler of the mightiest nation on the land, greater than physical riches or physical popularity or physical wealth. He saw, rather to have have the exclusion and being in the people of God condemned as a slave, rather than be royalty in in the land of Egypt. Why? Because he knew what he had. What he did is that he identified. He identified with the God of creation as being his God. Now, From here, you read about all these guys. You read about Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Samuel, David. All of these people were not perfect. All of these people made mistakes. You look at this like Rahab was humbled. She was a prostitute that was saved out of Jericho. Gideon was tested. He was hiding and he tested God several times. Barak, he couldn't go by himself when God had called him, so he, he asked for a confirmation. Samson was a player, literally. He played games with the things of God and the gifts God had given him. Jephthah, he made a vow, but he made an irrational vow that he actually held to, though. Samuel was the one who listened. And David was the one who pursued. All of these lessons that we draw from these heroes of faith, which I I don't know if the heroes of faith is the correct way to describe it, but because what they do is they direct us to who they are trusting in. That's where they're directing us. That's the signpost. So the examples that we can draw from them means this. What faith means for us is this. When we look at these guys here, these six people, the Abel who trusted, Enoch who walked, Noah who obeyed, Abraham who saw, Sarah who laughed, Moses who identified, what does that mean for you and I now? What does it mean for where we go from here? Well, it means this, that as Abel trusted, we too can trust. That as we have placed our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one who takes our sin away. Not by what I work, not by what I do, not by what I give away, but by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And he takes my sin away. And then as we walk with him, that's what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 has such substance. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Once again, it's not based upon me and leaning on my understanding, but upon him. Enoch, who walked, I am told this, he walked, he pleased God. This is the focus. This is where the relationship lies, that we walk about and do what we do because we want to please God by faith. You look at Noah, who obeyed. I'm told this: if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14:15. And that, when you keep the commandments, I'm not saying it doesn't necessarily work out the way you want it, but in Romans 8:28, when it says all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes, see what gives that substance once again is upon the person of Jesus Christ. It may not work the way you want it to work. Please bear that in mind. It works together for good to those who love God. Yes but good as God deems worthy. You look at your children. If you have your kids, you will say things to them. Dad, can I do this? No. Why? Because I said, and because it's not good for you. I mean, you don't feed your kids cake every morning for breakfast. You don't feed your kids lollies every night for dinner. Your kids would love it, but why don't you? Because you withhold things because it's for their good. So it is with God. I'm told with Abraham we are given the joy of being able to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? Because the things of above are eternal. I'm told in the Gospels by Jesus to, to lay up treasures in heaven, not on things on the earth. Why? Because things on the earth will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my word will never pass away, we're told by Jesus. Sarah who laughed, I'm told this, Philippians 4, 4, to rejoice. But what and who am I to rejoice in? Rejoice. In the Lord, always and again, I say, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, is where it sits. Moses, who identified, this is one of the things I I think. Moses, who identified with God, yes, it's wonderful to say that you are a child of God. Yes, it's the privilege we've been bestowed upon, being known as um, as one John. What manner of love has been bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God? That is awesome. But this here. Revelation twenty-one three, and twenty-one seven. You know what that says? God says this. The Lord Jesus says this. He says, "I will be their God, and they will be my people." See, it's not about me identifying with Him. The privilege rests in the fact that He identifies with me. I remember sharing you with this. That there's a friend who's gone to play. Um, basketball for a college over in San Francisco, and he's trying to make it big in the NBA. He's trying to go for it, and I said to him this. I said, bro, bro, can, uh, when you make it va- famous in the NBA, can I, can I say that I know you? And he goes, yeah, man, sure, sure. I said, that's cool, and I thought about it. I thought, hang on a sec, no, no, no. Can you say you know me? <laughs> that when you're on a TV after playing, you know, sc- sc- scoring six points and one rebound and no assists, but when you sit there and look go, oh, yeah, I just like to say, hi, hey, Joe Helg out there. Out there. Man, so that, that, that's a lot more, isn't it? That's a lot more than saying, oh, yeah, I know that guy. But the fact that he goes, oh, I know Joe. Oh, yeah. That means this is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He says, Jono, you're my child. I know Jono. I know Eva. I know Eugene. They are my children. I mean, this is the creator of the universe who says that he knows you. He knows every hair on your head or none whatsoever. He knows all of that. He knows every intimate thing about you. That is the greatness of who Jesus Christ is. So we're able to trust in what God could atone for sin. We can just trust in Jesus who can take sin away. Where Enoch walked with God and pleased him by faith, we can walk with him and please him also, even to the point where Jesus marvels. When Noah obeyed, even though he didn't so understand, we too can obey looking up, setting our affections on things above, rejoicing, irrespective of the context, because we are held within the hand of Jesus Christ, the one who identifies with us. This is the relationship that is shared between us and our Lord. This means that I seek Him as I grow to know Him, as I cherish my relationship with Him. Everything else slowly falls into perspective. See, what irritates me won't be such a big deal when it gets to eternity. What makes me upset in the issue of eternity? Nah, I'm upset. I'm being a bit of a drama queen. Okay? You, you find everything that takes place in this life in its rightful place, which is why I want to finish on this. When you look at this passage here in Hebrews 11, 36 to 40, these are the saints. These are the people that we've just heard about. Some face jeers. And flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sword in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us. Would they be made perfect? This is to be continued next week, where this points to him who truly is better than. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. We won't close with a song. I'm also going to give thanks for the meal. If you want to be prayed for this morning, please come to the front. There'll be some people from the prayer team up here. We would love to be able to talk with you and to pray with you about whatever's going on in your life. But if you'd just like to bow your heads and I'll close in prayer now and give thanks for the food. Father, as rushed as this message was, I pray that you will take your word and you will implant it deeply within the souls of each individual here, that you'll stir with us, a desire to know who you are, even greater. Father, I pray that you will help us to see your hand at work in each of our lives, and that as you call us and as you draw us to you, we might respond in obedience. Thank you for the relationship we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have made us new creations in Christ, and that you have taken away our sin, not just covered it. Father, I thank you for the privilege it is to be called your child, and as we share in the food that you so kindly provided, May we continue to give thanks for all things that you give us. You truly are our great provider. You truly are our great shepherd. You truly are our great God. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.